Hi, I'm Joanne Woodson, a solo practitioner specializing in commercial leasing law. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and I know that there's a lot to wrap your head around when it comes to commercial leasing. The goal of my podcast, the Commercial Leasing Diva Podcast, is to make your lives as commercial leasing professionals easier and more fun. In the podcast, I speak to other commercial leasing professionals who share their expertise so that we can all improve our commercial leasing game and better serve our clients. Today's guest is James Bennett. James is a vice chairman life science practice at CBRE based in San Francisco, as well as Silicon Valley. James and I have known each other for a really long time. He's got incredible insights into life science and what it takes to be an effective broker in this arena. And I know you're gonna learn a lot from the conversation, enjoy. Hey there, James, your, your microphone's on, there you go. I'm doing good. How are you? Good. So, so where are you? Are you? I'm in Reno, Nevada. I always start off just asking people to talk about their current role, uh, which you were just starting to do. Um, so, can you tell us about your typical client that you represent and the specific sector, which for you, of course, is life science that you work in? Sure. So, so my entire focus is on on the life science industry has been for 20 years and, and for people who don't know how do you define life science so life science is is somewhat of a broad definition but it includes biotech um, it includes pharmaceutical companies it includes medical device diagnostics so when, when we talk about obviously recent subject um groups that are doing COVID tests, they're, they're in the right. diagnostic realm. So right. it's, it's a pretty broad-based industry. And, Think of and, scientists in lab coats in labs. Yes, but it also <laughs> includes, you know, as of late, we've seen quite a surge, particularly in the East Bay and in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area with what we, what we now call food tech. And these are, um, again, scientists in lab coats doing interesting research on alternatives to things like dairy and meat. So uh -huh. we've, we've artificial all, meat and that sort of thing. We've all, we've all gotten familiar with like impossible foods who are one of the early, right. you know, poster children for that. But right. I, I, I hadn't really thought of them as being life science, but it is bio science. It, so it, yeah, it really okay. is. So and their, yeah. their space needs are, are actually quite, quite similar to what we see in, in traditional biotech. Okay, interesting. And do you tend to represent mostly tenants or mostly landlords or a combination of both? I I represent a combination of both. So every, everything from um, on the tenant side, I like to say everything from the early startups, the the two guys, a dog and an idea, to um, you know big big pharma and big bio up to Amgen and and Bristol Myers Squibb have been two of my more significant um, large clients over over the years. But I really enjoy the early stage companies and and working with them to uh, you know through through their trials and tribulations of growth, sometimes some decline before they they really hit it. And seeing some of my early stage clients go public and now become that's exciting. You know, two hundred, three hundred employee companies. Yeah, it's it's exciting. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think is interesting about life science is that it requires some specialty knowledge. You know, if you're if you're doing office leasing, all respect to my high-tech clients who might have sort of interesting space desires, you know, it's a vanilla box. 
And if you're doing retail, it's often a vanilla box. And, you know, there's fancy finishes and whatever. But the space mm -hmm. itself, it, it's not hard for the layperson to understand what the needs of the client are. Life right. science, you have to have a little bit more specialty knowledge. So what are the some of the key things that you've had to learn in order to um, properly serve both landlord and tenant clients in life science? So a lot of it has to do with the you know, starting with the base buildings and then working into the the, the specific infrastructure. It, it is really different. If you walk into an office building, you're expecting that the air conditioning works and that the janitorial service comes around five days a week and takes care of that. And that's about it. And with, with the laboratory environment, there are a lot of special concerns, particularly as it relates to the, the HVAC systems, the power, um, backup power. Th these are all super important. And the operational side in terms of how do you get deliveries to your space, particularly as the industry's grown into converted office buildings as the industry has gone from you know, flex space in single or two-story buildings to now 10, 12-story buildings. The, the vertical transportation part, shipping and receiving, how you deal with hazardous materials, these, these are all significant in, in terms of the, the considerations one looks at with, with a transaction. Who's handling, who's responsible for the the maintenance of some of these systems, um, particularly as you get into, again, conversions or as you get into second, third, fourth generation space, what are you really getting? What is your exposure to capital expenses, which can be significant in, in this industry? If you have to replace a backup generator, if you have to replace all of your air systems, these are, again, significant hits on a, on a capital expenditure side that on a triple net lease get passed through to the tenant. Right. So on the landlord side, the landlord who might be entering into this sector has to have some understanding of modifications that may need to be made to their building in order to accommodate a life science type tenant. Right. Which mm -hmm. can be, these systems are very sophisticated, these HVAC. I mean, in COVID, we've become much more attuned to this idea that there's like these ultra filtration systems. But life science, even before COVID, there are obviously filtration levels that are necessary for some life science that would not be in your standard office build out. Right. I mean, this is all in, in the laboratory. It's all what we call one pass air. So it's not, there's, there's no recirculated air. We, we look at um, cubic feet per minute, depending on the science, how, mu how much air is coming in how many air changes per hour there are. And in addition, one of the, the significant issues is in an office building, typically there's normal business hours of you know, eight to five or eight to 6 p.m. Afterwards, the system shuts down. And if people are working late, okay, they're working late. Um, but And you can turn the system back on, but you pay a premium for it. You pay a premium, you pay after hours charges for that. In a, in a lab environment, you're, you're running 24 seven, um, right. particularly on cooling when you have, so you'll have a, a freezer farm of minus 80 freezers that generate a huge amount of heat loads. Those, those systems have to be running 24 seven. Um, you have animal facilities. So you're, you're in some very sensitive experiments with uh, mice or rats and those systems 
cannot shut down. They need to be running 24-7. It's a very carefully controlled environment for um, calibrating the, the, the studies that are going on. So that consistent environment is critical to the to the experiments and obviously then to the companies that are running them. So and this is you referenced before the backup power. So again, a specialty item that you have to understand a lot about is backup generators, whether a landlord is providing it, whether the tenant is installing it, who's maintaining it, who makes sure that it, it has to be tested periodically yeah. to make sure it's always functional. Um, and so that it will um, be functioning if there's a, you know, the power grid goes down. Um, right. And so this leads me to, you know, what I'm really talking about a lot in this um, series of interviews is the letter of intent stage and mm -hmm. what we have to make sure we include in the letter of intent. So for life science, obviously the condition of the premises when it's delivered, what the landlord is going to do to improve the space for this tenant's specific life science need, and then what the tenant is going to be permitted to do. So the tenant may ha handle certain hazardous materials and they have to be disposed of in a certain way or stored before they're disposed. And so do you see at the letter of intent stage where a lot of this, it's, it seems very uh, granular. Um, we don't really think of letters of intent as being more just overview, but you, you really have to get that granular, don't you, for life science? Yeah, you, you really do. And, and especially in a new development. So a tenant's going into a new project that may be just starting construction or you know, in the shell construction phase and understanding exactly what they're getting is is really key so typically even in, in a letter of intent we'll ask the landlord to provide what we call their their warm shell spec sheet which which really covers all of the the nuances with the MEP for the building the the power the backup generator the HVAC capabilities um, so unlike an office lease we typically will include that in a in an LOI um, there's also if you're if you're going into second generation space, um, having some ideas to what's the what's the remaining useful life of these systems? What are you getting out of the out of the gate? So oftentimes we end up negotiating some sort of um, warranty period mm -hmm. out of the gate, and then and then going forward, some treatment as to how capex is going to is going to work. Now, oftentimes landlords like to start out by saying that if, if there's a capital expense item such as replacing a chiller that it's a one-time cost and we're, we're constantly negotiating for tenants to have that that capital expense be amortized over its useful life so for instance right. you're in a 10-year lease and you have a major capital expense event in year eight you've, you've got two years of runway left and this is probably a 20 year useful life, a 15 to 20 year useful life. And obviously from the tenant standpoint, if they're paying two out of 15 or 20 years, that's that's a lot more favorable than towards the end of a lease having to have this, this significant one-time expense item. Right. Typically the and landlord- that's only an appropriate allocation of the cost because the landlord will continue to have the benefit of that. Whereas the tenant of course has now exited the building and- That's right. Or if they, if they choose to renew, then, you know, that, that sort of gets recalibrated at the time they, re, they right. renew. So right. that's, that's one of the big items that we, 
we really look to negotiate in, in the LOI. The, the other one we run across very frequently, especially in California and in particular the Bay Area, is on earthquake insurance mm. and in <clears throat> deductibles because obviously a, a seismic event will trigger a pretty significant deductible and oftentimes five percent of value often is my understanding five percent of the value of the building so if the right. if the building is ten million dollars then the deductible is five percent of ten million dollars if it's a total calamitous event right but from a from a tenant standpoint it, it's similar to capital expenditures in that you know landlords often take the position right out of the gate that it, it's a one-time cost to the tenant right and what we typically end up doing is negotiating um some some amortized treatment to that that cost or there's some kind of cap that we negotiate right and that, that's often identified i look to identify that in an loi to, to right sort of i think it's an uphill battle if any material financial term isn't in the letter of intent that's right that's exactly right so and again someone might go gosh it's awfully granular you're talking about an earthquake event, a deductible, that's like a line item in the exclusions from the common area expenses. <laughs> really? And it's like, well, but it's a material economic benefit to the parties to have that clarified. And so you want it done ahead of time because after that, your leverage is different once the letter of intent is finalized. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I think, you know, having done office leases back in the day that, yes, the, the level of detail is significantly higher in, in life science leases. Right. So what I see often also in life science leases is that the tenant improvement allowance can be very large because the tenant has a very intense build-out needs for their labs. Mm -hmm. Do you typically see that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're now, for, for years, we were 150 a foot from a, a warm shell for new projects. And um, now we're looking at two, 225, 250 a foot. Wow. For tenant improvement allowances and keeping Is in mind. Is that a 10-year lease typically? Yes. Yeah. But keep in mind that the, the cost of build-out labs has gone from around 250, 300 a foot to closer to 400, 450 plus per square foot wow. so the tenants are putting a lot putting of a lot, lot of spin of in the game wow along with along so with then that. how does the landlord looking at those numbers which are really big think about the security deposit typically for a life science now not if it's pfizer or whatever but you know some some lesser company than than ginorma pharma well where it gets interesting is we we've got a subset now with with some develop some developers who are familiar with the early stage companies. They're they're willing to take um, a, a reasonable amount of risk on an individual company, knowing that their build out, which is typically a, a spec lab build, will will not only service the needs of the particular company they're negotiating with, but has considerable upstream value. That it's it's very um, usable downstream so even for you know what we're seeing now at early stage we'll call it series a series b funded companies yeah. there are some developers who are quite comfortable fully building out space at three to four hundred dollars a square foot and having a company come in to take a space for 
five, six, seven, eight years. And typically that security deposit is anywhere from three to six months. Wow. So it's not it's not what you would expect. I mean, that is a very different dynamic than I have seen historically. I mean, it, it, historically, landlords had a calculus that really factored in the TI allowance, and mm-hmm. maybe there's a burn down in the future, but at least right. your the initial ca- cash outlay from the landlord, the idea would be that um, there would be security in place for the first few years of the lease at least to re- recompense the landlord should something go sideways. But right. what I'm hearing you say is that the land, some landlords are recognizing the value of what they build in that space retains its value and can be used by replacement tenants. Exactly. So I think, I think at the early stage that that model is changing quite a lot. Um, where wow. it gets a little tricky is um, upstream where you might have a, a young public company whose science could be a little different, whose improvements are now maybe not mainstream, that's where it gets a little trickier. Right. And and for companies like that, we're typically seeing anywhere from six to 12 months on a, we'll call it an eight to 10 year deal. Right. And does that, you know, at this point, does that fully um, cover a landlord for the kind of TIs they're putting in? No, but- Keep in mind about 60% of the cost to build out a lab space is MEP. Okay. So I think most landlords understand that there's there's certainly long-term value to that MEP. Right. Even if they have to go in and reconfigure some of the right. laboratories. But right. um, that, that's where it gets a little stickier. And obviously upstream from there with, with better credit companies, then it's it's really not so much of an issue. It's right. like we'll do the obligatory few months of, of a security right. deposit for a say a, a more established public company. And then as you get up to a, a big bio, big pharma, then you don't get any security deposit because you, you don't really need it. Right. I think one of the things also that's fascinating to me about life science that I've learned over the many years I've been working on this is um, the fact that a lot of these companies, it's it's a, you don't want to say roll of the dice because that's a disservice to science, but sometimes it feels like that because essentially what they're doing is they are saying, okay, I've got this great scientific breakthrough. I'm going to spend some years in the lab trying to prove that it's a thing that works, whether it's a drug or fake meat or whatever. And But then ultimately they have to go to the FDA and get approval. And so everything hinges on if they get the FDA approval. Mm-hmm. And if they get the approval, it's very exciting. And maybe the IPO and it's it's fabulous. Uh, if they don't get the FDA approval, then that is, uh, for some companies, the kiss of death. Right. Um, is there some way, and I haven't really seen this too often in the letters of intent, where you put something in the letter of intent to allow the tenant an exit strategy should they need to leave the lease early. Is that something that your clients are concerned about as tenants and they try to protect against? Well, we, we've seen some, um, we, we, we've certainly negotiated the ability to terminate a little early, but not, not specifically targeted to a, an FDA event. It's more mm-hmm. of a, hey, we'll, we'll do your 10-year lease, which is what the landlords have been demanding for larger spaces. But right. we'll negotiate some some runway to get out a little early. It could be a two or three year um, window. 
-hmm. but um I had not negotiated a lease that was specifically tied to some, you know, FDA approval type event. Right, right, right. Yeah. Now, I think I think landlords are <laughs> they want you locked in. They they want yeah. to minimize the amount of um, exit strategies that a that a tenant might have. Um, and life science is interesting too, in the sense that the pandemic had a really different effect because most life science were viewed as essential services. And so they were not shut down. Was that right. your experience? Yeah, absolutely. So have you seen any difference in the letters of intent post pandemic in terms of what life science tenants are looking for? Not, not really. I think, you know, the, the most significant impact of the pandemic has been on the office portion of, of my client's spaces. Right. In the pandemic, we were typically, it, it varies by company, but we would typically see 60% office, 40% lab, and the office would include, depending on the, the how advanced the company was, your, your, your general <clears throat> office functions, executives, finance, accounting, legal, the typical functions you'd find in, in any company. Um, slightly more advanced companies would have clinical regulatory people. With the pandemic, clearly a lot of these people were able to work remotely. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a shift from that 60 office, 40 lab to the reverse. Smaller uh -huh. footprints, but now 60% lab, 40% office, which is right. going to change the, the dynamics a little bit. Um, right. Obviously, it doesn't cost as much to build out an office as it does the lab that's right. space. That's right. So I think a lot of my clients... The lab functions have stayed the same. They've they've had to create some protocols, you know, certainly in the in the depths of the pandemic around you know how people use common area functions in the lab, like glass wash and autoclave. And um, but the the real impact has been on the office side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. So. Life science is also really different from a lot of other sectors right now in the sense that my understanding is space is still at a premium, um, that there's uh, a lot of demand, not as much supply, as opposed to like San Francisco office right now, which as we know would be uh, the diametric opposite of that. Yes. Um, what, what effect does that have when you're negotiating letters of intent that in life science at least we're still seeing relatively high rents. Obviously, these very large TI allowances, as you've mentioned. And there's, you know, maybe another. The landlords are always like, I've got tenants lined up down the street. Well, in this case, maybe they do have a couple tenants in the wings. So how does that affect when you're negotiating the letters of intent? Well, it, again, it, it's been very competitive. And space has been at a premium, particularly space that that is is the best fit for growing companies. Now we're starting to see a little bit more normalization. The 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 um, the pace <clears throat> that we went through last year has has certainly tapered off, mm -hmm. but vacancies are still you know, single digits. Typically, depending on the submarket, we're we're seeing anywhere from two, three, five, six, seven percent vacancy, which compares it's to office now is thirty percent. Right. Um, so. Landlords are still in a in a pretty good position. Um, I think you see competition, particularly for the companies that 
landlords really want to get into their portfolio, the ones that show the the, the most promise for growth in mm -hmm. terms of early stage, and obviously for the the larger ones, um, there's there's some pretty good competition. So you you can you can certainly work the landlords and and create some some leverage, but it's still a tight market. There's there's not a there's there's not a lot of negotiation in in terms of there's not a lot of bandwidth for negotiation in terms of rents and other concessions. Um, where it can get interesting is is really more in the in the the nuances. Mm -hmm. And the, the market has has clearly established where it is at in terms of rental rates and TIs. Right. And again, there's a <clears throat> there's, there's a a mild band of uh, a range of of where you can negotiate, but it's it's a competitive market, but it's also a very tight market. Right, right. So <clears throat> along those lines, what I see sometimes when clients are in this position is they want to rush through the letter of intent stage and just get to the lease. And I always you know, try and say, let's make sure we're all in agreement on the terms of the letter of intent. Because people are like, oh, I know it says that in the letter of intent, but you know, let's just get to the lease. What are some of the mistakes that you see at the letter of intent stage with life science clients that you, you try to sort of steer them away from? Well, so some some of the mistakes, if, if it's a development project, it, it has to do with holding the landlord to certain times. Mm -hmm. Clearly, there's there's a date at which tenants want to get into the space. It's either because of the need to start a scientific program or it's because they've got a lease expiring and how are they going to handle the the tail end of an existing lease right. uh, i think people overlook the the dates and let's face it in today's world with with supply chain disruptions construction costs um, labor issues i don't know a single project that is actually delivered <clears throat> on time right in the last couple of years so it's it's really important that um, there's a clear understanding as to where a developer is with with their their ground up development, or even if it's a second generation space that's going through a significant TI, um, to to be really clear as to the the reality of the time frame. Firstly, and then secondly, the the what ifs if the, if the landlord doesn't deliver, <clears throat> so that often gets overlooked. I think the um, some of the issues we talked about earlier, things like the op operational issues, um, touching on on capital expenditures, touching on on uninsured casualty. I think a lot of times those get overlooked and and shouldn't because, as you know, it's one thing to be in the middle of a lease negotiation and say, "Oh, that wasn't in the LOI, so let's just." You know, we'll, we'll we'll wing it, but there's there's nothing better than to to be in a negotiation and and go back and say, well, wait a second, uh, let's go to the LOI section twenty two yeah. where we talked right. about uninsured casualty. You, Mister Landlord, right. said that it would be amortized over right. the life of of the repairs or restoration costs. That's what we're going with. Yeah, I mean, I think you raise an interesting point about the letter of intent, which is that. My clients always are are sort of obsessive about, well, it's not binding, right? So it doesn't matter. And I always say to them, 
well, I know that says it's non-binding. It said, but there is what I call the moral suasion, which is if it is in the letter of intent or to the contrary, if it's a material financial term that is not in the letter of intent, it is going to be a very uphill battle. So if you wanted to cap on CAM, if that was really important to you and that was not in the letter of intent, the fact that the letter of intent is not binding is not going to hold a lot of weight during the lease negotiations. The landlord will say, if you wanted a cap on CAM, should have been in the LOI. Right. Should have come up then. So even though it's non-binding, in a sense, it has a real power to control how the parties are behaving during lease negotiations. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but any concluding thoughts or topics that we haven't covered about life sciences that you want to share? Well, that's a that's a good question. I I think that w- one of the interesting nuances I've learned over the last few years is life sciences during the pandemic has attracted a whole new um, cast of characters, a lot of new players, new developers, new investors, and we have we have the old guard, the the developers and the investors who have who've been around for for quite a long time and have been doing this for quite a long time. And I've, I've represented, again, both landlords and, and tenants. So I've seen both sides of this. I've seen some of the new players come in and make some, 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 some errors in, in how they, they operate, particularly in, in delivery conditions. Mm-hmm. So I would say- Are they just attracted to it because it seems more stable than other sectors of leasing right now? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a number of groups that have come over from, say, the office side, right? Um, who who are now dabbling in life sciences. And um, when I'm representing a tenant, I think extra caution is is really uh, advisory because you you are you're essentially the the crash test dummy for somebody <laughs> learning you know learning the right. industry, and right. you know that could go that could go either way that could you know, fall into the developer's lap, which is probably where it should fall. But if, if you're not really careful, it could fall into your lap. You could have exposure from either delays or the inability of the, of the, the building or the systems to accommodate your science. And that's a, that's a big no-no. So we've, we've seen, it, it gets down into the weeds, but we've certainly seen situations where tenants have been negotiating to go into projects that really don't have all the, um, they don't have what they actually need to get in and do their science, either from a timing standpoint or from a, a, a functional capability standpoint. So um, doing your due diligence up front is, is super important. And a lot, a lot of times, even with the scientists, that, that gets overlooked a bit. The space I might think look great. It's a really interesting point. And I think it's one thing that knows a landlord has to do due diligence on the tenant. Landlord has to know, you know, is the tenant credit worthy? What's their prospect of their business prospering, regardless of the sector? But people often don't think that the tenant needs to do some due diligence on the landlord. Absolutely. Especially if the landlord is delivering a sophisticated project or a ground up project. So mm-hmm. if this, if you sign a lease and what's there right now is a square of dirt, Right. And in two years, what's going to be there is a mixed use complex where your retail store is going to be on the ground floor, a bunch of apartments on top. 
what confidence do you have that the landlord is understands that product and can deliver it on time? And the same with the life science. And so again, that's a due diligence, not only in the condition of the property, but also on your landlord and their ability. Are they long-term experienced in this product? And so you're like, oh, well, this is the 400th project they've done. I'm very confident. Or as you say, are these newcomers to the sector? Mm -hmm. And so do you, do you, is there a way for you as the tenant rep to do some education with the landlord? I mean, it's very delicate, but to kind of say, gee, we're excited to do this with you, but <laughs> have you seen our requirements? Do you understand? Yeah, well, I think that's where, you know, again, up front, it's, it's really important to, for, for say a company to make sure that their, their needs are being met from a power HVAC backup generator, um, the, the MEP is just so critical to, to what these tenants do. Right. Um, a lot of times that, that sort of gets overlooked in the in the sort of sales and sizzle of, hey, this is this great new project. It's either you know, right. a development or oftentimes right. here's a, you know, here's an office building that's being converted to labs or a flex building. Where where are you? What what are we missing here? Like what what are the down the where's the downside to going into a project like this? And I think a lot of times it's it's really the the delivery. We've seen a lot of delivery dates slip significantly because of complications from permitting or um, being able to get certain you know long long lead items in in a timely manner. Well, and then of course there's just at the local level the permitting office. You know, as a result of COVID, as you know, first of all, there's fewer personnel. Their hours may be fewer, and there still continues to be pent up backlog right. of all the stuff that didn't get processed during COVID. And of course, all the work that people were like, oh, now COVID is maybe in advance, whatever, who knows, uh, but at least projects are going forward again. And so now there's all these submittals that maybe would have happened 18 months ago, but now they're happening now. And mm -hmm. so they're just overwhelmed at the local office and the building departments. And so there's a, you know, used to be already a long delay, but now you it's much, even more unpredictable than it was in the past, in my experience. Yeah, it is. And even, even with some experienced developers, we're, we're seeing that they've had to come back and um, re recalibrate timing for delivery. Yeah. Um, things that in the past would it would never have been an issue right exactly exactly great well thank you james for talking to me this was My so pleasure. informative and helpful as always i'm so delighted to talk to you and uh you've got so much wisdom in this area i'm always learning new things from you so it's great well i've enjoyed working with you with some of our mutual clients and uh, look look forward to um more going forward Absolutely. Absolutely. Congratulations again on CBRE. Thanks for the the, the call and, and the opportunity to participate. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. I'm sure we will. I'm Joanne Woodsum. Thanks for listening to the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, rate and review us, like and subscribe. You know the drill podcast is produced by Sandy Viteri and edited by Matthew Salanoa. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next time.